This podcast is sponsored by The Christian Way of Life, the new book from Eric Alexander and Alliance Publishing. Find it online at reformedresources.org. What is the Christian way of life, and how can we live it? Some may reply with a list of do's and don'ts, but we need far more than a lecture. We need a Savior. In his new book, The Christian Way of Life, Eric Alexander leads readers down the radiant corridors of Romans 12 through 15, showing how the gospel of redeeming grace empowers us for holy and acceptable service to God. There is no secret in Christian living in a wasting world, only a simple truth. It is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Alliance Publishing is excited to share this new book book with you. Order your copies directly from the Alliance's online resource center, reformedresources.org. That's reformedresources.org. Also available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. Order your copy today. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. By no means, certainly not. Horrors, no. What a ghastly thought. On the contrary, the love of Christ constraineth us. For we thus judge that if one died for all, it was because we were all dead in sin, and that he died for us in order that we who live should not henceforth live unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again from the dead. And unto him be all the glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, God Forbid. People would be shocked if a king decided to marry a prostitute, but the citizens would be even more appalled if the new queen continued her life of harlotry. The Apostle Paul was horrified by the suggestion that God's grace allows people to continue living in sin. Far from encouraging a life of iniquity, The grace of God provides the strongest motivation for the true child of God to pursue a holy life. Do you respond to God's grace with license or with loving obedience? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, God Forbid. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee for the gift of faith, and ask Thee that in this hour it may be directed fully to Thee, that we may know Thee better, and thereby be better enabled to do Thy will. Of ourselves we are nothing, but we trust in Thy grace. 
Bless the word now to each listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My text today is in Romans 6, 2. In the King James Version, it's the simple expletive, God forbid. There are some ideas which are so horrible that they draw a gasp of rejection from the whole being immediately upon their suggestion. It is thus with the idea of remaining in sin in order that Greece might have a greater overflow. What shall we say then, we read in the previous text, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The idea is so frightening that the whole soul cries out, God forbid. The various translations have sought to convey this revulsion of feeling. And when we have combined them all, we shall be nearer the inner meaning of the phrase. God forbid, we have in our old King James Version, but it sounds somewhat archaic in all but the most educated ears. The earliest attempts to change included such phrases as certainly not, not at all, by no means. Phillips, in his paraphrase, conveys a little of the feeling of the thought even though he goes far from a literal translation when he renders the idea, what a ghastly thought. If we look closely at the fabric of the argument, we will see what Paul is saying. He is answering the misrepresentation of doctrine that has been made by those who are opposed to it. We should understand that there are many people who are opposed to Christian truth. Their opposition comes originally from Satan, who is the chief opposer of Christian truth. They hate the truth of God to such an extent that they will use every possible arm against it. Lies, of course, are one of the chief weapons against truth. For truth cannot really be opposed in the long run. It's therefore the work of Satan to take something that is just slightly off the truth and then to fight it with all possible fury. Anyone who has followed these studies honestly through the first five chapters of the Epistle to the Romans must now have some comprehension of the doctrine of justification. By now it must be understood that when one is truly justified, he can never be unjustified. Someone will ask if this is not the doctrine of eternal security. The Lord Jesus Christ said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Thus the believer is seen indeed to be eternally secure. The first five chapters of Romans, and especially the third, fourth, and fifth chapters, are the theological development of this great truth which Jesus spoke. I can well imagine that the devil hates this doctrine as much as any other. For he knows from experience that any child of God who enters into the large knowledge of justification has learned that he is forever beyond the reach of Satan and has been translated forever out of his kingdom in order to be placed securely in the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And therefore Satan seeks to keep believers from the knowledge of complete and eternal salvation. And he immediately cries out that anyone who could hold such a doctrine would be teaching that it was possible to remain in sin in order that grace could abound. He's setting up a straw man and fighting that which the Bible does not teach at all, since he cannot fight the truth. Thus it is in our day that the opponents of truth cry out that the doctrine of eternal security teaches 
that one who has been sa a saved man may never be lost, no matter what he does and no matter how he lives. And when they say it, they usually place the emphasis on the last half of the accusation. Now, I believe that it is safe to say that many Christians who are not deeply taught think that the doctrine of eternal security means that one can do as he pleases as long as he believes. And it is only natural that they should act with resentment against any such idea. Their first thought is, and it should be, God forbid, by no means, certainly not. What a ghastly thought, never. But it must be realized that those who hold to the great doctrine of justification by faith, which is the theological way of expressing the doctrine of eternal security, hate any such idea of license as much as the opponents of the doctrine could ever hate it. Put the two ideas side by side and look at them. The opponents of the doctrine say, oh, you're teaching that as long as you believe, you may do as you please. Now, we deny such an idea utterly. For what we teach is that those who are justified through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ have been given the gift of eternal life and that God is able to keep and will bring through to heaven all those who have thus been placed in Christ. You see, the two ideas are as different as night and day. The first idea puts the leverage for living inside the life of the individual. The second idea puts the leverage for being lifted to God outside of ourselves and in Christ. The first idea is really salvation by works. The second is salvation by grace. The first looks at the sins of the individual. Our idea looks at the death of the Savior. That false idea gives rein to the old nature to ride where it will. Our idea gives rein to the new nature to rule as God wills. The first is an argument based on purely human logic. The second is a faithful acceptance of God's revealed word. Their idea centers the attention on human weakness. Our idea fixes the gaze of the believer on the all-sufficient power of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Horrors, no. The practice of putting up a straw man and attacking it is a common one. It has become known under various descriptions. Many years ago in England, a farmer who did not wish the hunters to ride over his wheat field attached a herring to a string. And when the fox dashed into his field, the man took the fish and drew it over the fox's tracks and then drew the fish down a road. The dogs followed the fox's scent to the point where the smell of the fish blotted it out, and then the dogs dashed up the road following the red herring. These are the tactics of some men in many different fields. We have seen, for example, in the United States that some men who stood righteously for common decency and the basic human rights of the underprivileged have been called communists. Some large landowners in the states along the Mexican frontier have exploited peon labor to the full. And the moment that someone called a halt on the basis of mere human decency toward individuals, while these were accused of being communists, it's the red herring across the trail. In the field of theology, the red herring is a most common practice, the straw man. We preach the simplicity of the gospel. Immediately there are those that cry out, oh, you are fundamentalists. And they look to see if we are going to advocate rolling on the floor or shouting at the top of our voices. It's the red herring across the trail. And when we teach that all who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ 
shall be safely and certainly and securely brought through to glory by the power of the living God, we are accused of teaching that as long as one is saved, that he can do as he pleases. To which we answer, God forbid, what a ghastly thought. Of those who circulate such false ideas within Christianity, there may be two different groups. The one acts through malice. For these, we can have nothing but contempt, and we can wonder if they themselves are truly saved. For if their theology be analyzed, it's nothing but a foundation of salvation by works behind a mask of pretended faith in Christ. But their faith has never laid hold upon the eternal reality of all that an infinite salvation can be. There has been no thought of the completeness of the work of Christ. Our Lord's declaration that it is finished has been interpreted to mean, well, it's finished up to the point where I take hold and do the rest of it myself. Such people are loath to abandon all hope in themselves. They are unwilling to take the place of spiritual bankruptcy before God in order to receive entire grace. They even come to the place where they distort scripture in order to bolster their own confidence in the flesh. Take, for example, what they have done to Christ's words, which we have just quoted from John's gospel. My sheep hear my voice. And then there are five statements made by our Lord concerning those whom he himself calls his sheep. He says, one, that they hear his voice. Two, that he knows them. Three, that they follow him. Four, that he gives unto them eternal life. And five, that they shall never perish. Now, there are no conditions whatsoever attached to any of these statements as they are made by the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who deny the finality of the work of Christ are forced to alter this precious promise and make it all conditional on something that man does for himself. They would have it read, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. If they follow me, I will give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now there is the crux of the whole matter. The Bible makes the whole chain of salvation from the state of sin to the throne of God dependent upon the grace of God as manifested in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These who fall short of the grace of God adulterate the doctrine by taking some of the glory away from him and keeping it for themselves. They would snatch some jewels from the diadem of Christ and mount them in the muddy crown of their own making. They do not understand that we are not Christians because we lead a Christian life, but that we lead a Christian life because we are Christians. When they add the condition to the third of those statements, if they follow me, they make the possession of eternal life and the freedom from perishing contingent upon following Christ. Now, we believe that the Bible teaches that following Christ is the result of the possession of eternal life and the consequent freedom from perishing. And that is the lesson that's going to be amplified through much of the next section of Romans 6 and 7. The modernist thinks that Jesus is nothing more than an extraordinary member of the human race, a child of Adam like all other human beings, and that he learned to live a life that was dependent upon God. Such men believe, if they do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, they believe that following Jesus Christ means nothing more than the living of a life on the same principles as that he lived his life, which they suppose to be a totally human life and that all who learn to live thus will thereby receive the gift of eternal life and shall never perish. 
it can readily be seen that this is nothing more nor less than salvation by character and good works. We have this idea denied in full in our study of earlier passages, and we've seen the reasons why such an idea is preposterous from the divine point of view. So we return to the great simplicity of justification by faith apart from the works of the law, and we rest in that truth. We even find that it is one of the greatest factors in calling us to holy living. Thus far, we have dealt with those who hurl the charge of license against the doctrine of justification because they really believe in salvation by works and hate that which brings them to the common denominator of sinfulness in the sight of God. But let me now deal with some of the misunderstandings which have gathered around the truth of justification because of the false attitudes of some of its friends. I can best illustrate this from an example in my own early Christian experience. I am more and more convinced that the process of becoming a Christian is a great deal like the process of being born and growing up in the physical life. The analogies are everywhere. I am now sure that I was saved long before I knew that I was saved, and that what I long looked back upon as the date of my salvation was nothing more than the date at which I entered into the assurance and certainty of the present possession of eternal life. I had attended a church for several years, and I had been active in the young people's work. At the occasion of a convention, I went to a city 50 miles from my home, and during the course of the meetings of those convention days, I became assured of my present standing before God as a justified believer. I had seen my first glimpse into the wonders of grace. I went back to my home church, and when it was my turn to lead the young people's meeting, I began to talk about my concept of it. As I look back on it now, I can understand the false ideas that some of the listeners must have secured from what I said. I had a great zeal for the truth, but it was not according to knowledge. After a few months, I had the opportunity of taking charge of a whole service in a little church that was temporarily without a pastor. I believe that I must have gone to an extreme in my joy of what I knew had come into my life. I was so eager that others should share that same joy and peace that I had found, that I must have been rather wild in my claims for the gospel at that time and for the freedom that one had when one believed in Christ. Now, I believe that this experience is not uncommon with young Christians who suddenly come into the joyous knowledge of assurance after long years of doubting and wondering about their salvation. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit taught Paul to warn Timothy against allowing a new convert to take a place of leadership, not a novice, lest being filled with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil, not a young convert. But let us go back of this early enthusiasm in the Christian life and ask why it should be so marked. There is, of course, some of the same exuberance in the knowledge of salvation that a young man or woman knows when they have become engaged to be married. We've all of us smiled at some story of a young man who has stopped a policeman on a corner to tell him that he has just become engaged to be married, or who tips the porter an extra dollar in the overwhelming joy of knowing that he has been accepted by his beloved fiancée. Oh, there is, I repeat, an even greater joy in the heart when one comes to the certain knowledge that all sin has been dealt with, that God loves us, that God holds nothing against us, that every sin we've ever committed is washed away, that we have been given eternal life, that we've become children of God, that we are accepted in the beloved, and that nothing, nothing 
can separate us from the love of God. We know from long experience that it's possible for a girl to settle down and become a good wife and mother who may at one time in her late adolescence have been feather-brained while she sang, I am as corny as Kansas in August, high as the flag on the 4th of July. And she goes on to say, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. Well, when we see young people that way about ordinary human love, let us be patient with young Christians who become slightly extravagant in their declarations of the liberty which has become theirs in Christ. They will soon settle down and begin to grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And if they are properly fed from the word of God, they'll do it without losing the joy of their salvation of which David speaks. For if David lost his joy, it was because of sin, and one who has once known it can never be satisfied with anything less than the true joy of fellowship. And the diminishing of that joy will be one of the strongest cords to pull us back to Christ. And thus it is that the Holy Spirit will check the exuberance of young Christians with our text, in the same manner that he will check those who deny salvation, complete salvation through grace. What is our response to be? Shall we sin to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? What a ghastly thought. It should also be noted that there are some Christians who turn away from the fullness of salvation because there are a few individuals who seem to make use of the doctrine in order to cover a lawless yieldedness to sin. Look at these people is the cry of some of those who are timid about accepting the fullness of the doctrine of justification and superabounding grace. The argument may be answered from two different points of view. In the first place, we cannot know whether such people who turn the grace of God into license are really saved or not. There is the great possibility that they are tares in the midst of the wheat. If they have not truly been born again, then their practice is no argument at all against the fullness of grace. If they are saved, they are, of course, woefully out of the will of God. And it is no more logical to point to them in an argument that the doctrine of abounding grace is therefore to be avoided than it would be to decry the practice of honesty because some men steal, or to deny marriage because there have been faithless mates, or to shun truth because there have been people who dealt in falsehood and lying. Finally, let me deal with the argument that we should not give the name eternal security to the doctrine of superabounding grace through justification provided by the death of Jesus Christ. We are told that the phrase is not in the Bible. Well, there are two answers to that argument. First, there are many theological terms which have been created by men as shortcuts in describing some divine truths which are not to be found in so many words in the Bible itself. But that does not mean that the thing itself is not there. We will use these terms and continue to use them because they are convenient and express truths that are in the scriptures. And thus we will speak in the same way of the eternal security of the believer. But the second answer to the argument against the term lies in the concordance in the study of the word eternal. Is it true that eternal security is not in the Bible? Well, it will not take more than a paragraph to give the results of a study which took me many, many days. But the facts are there for any student to follow. The Bible words in the Hebrew and the Greek that are translated eternal, forever, etc., are several. The Hebrew word olam is found 448 times in the Old Testament. Other Hebrew words are 
Ad, 30 times. Nezak, 42 times. Five other words occur in usages which involve the idea of eternal or forever. In the New Testament, the word ion is found 128 times in 105 different verses, being doubled 23 times. The word ionios is found 71 times. And six other words and phrases with the idea of eternity are found a total of 58 times. So in the midst of these hundreds of verses that speak about eternal things, we find that the believers, you and I, are called to eternal life, which is a part of God's eternal purpose, to bring us eternal salvation, of which Christ is the author, on the grounds of his eternal redemption, into eternal glory, where there awaits us eternal inheritance, which we are to share with the Lord Jesus Christ, reigning together with him eternally. Now, in the light of all these passages, let us boldly proclaim that grace has abundantly flowed forth from God and that we are therefore in eternal security. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. By no means, certainly not. Horrors, no. What a ghastly thought. On the contrary, the love of Christ constraineth us. For we thus judge that if one died for all, it was because we were all dead in sin, and that he died for us in order that we who live should not henceforth live unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us and rose again from the dead, and unto him be all the glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray thee, our God and Father, that the Holy Spirit may bless the word to each heart, give restlessness to any who have not been saved. And upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And to thee be the glory now and forever. Amen. As Charles Spurgeon declared in one of his famous sermons, the doctrines of grace do not lead to sin. Instead, they lead God's people to love Him more and please Him by pursuing godly lives. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, God Forbid. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, God Forbid, or simply request message number R6-3. We'd also like to make available to you our free booklet entitled, Who's Choosing Whom? Do you view God as patiently waiting in heaven, hoping that people will turn to Him? If so, this free booklet will open your eyes to an amazing biblical truth. Long before you chose to follow the Lord, He chose you for salvation and worked in your life to bring you to Himself. Far from creating confusion or controversy, the doctrine of election and God's sovereign grace should fill us with confidence and adoration for our Lord, who saves to the uttermost. Ask for your free copy of Who's Choosing Whom when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. 
Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888, or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, is now headquartered in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. To make a contribution or for more information, write to us at Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. You could also call 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org.